All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridia, and we're going to be looking at the sin against the Holy Spirit, obviously a section of some interest and perhaps some confusion, but we'll try to get things straightened out as best we can here. Uh, page 105 is where we will pick up. Let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so last week we introduced this, and it dawned on me, feel kind of foolish in hindsight, but it dawned on me, why not just look at Matthew 12, 32? That's the same, that's the first of three verses that are quoted here by Chemnitz, and pretty sure off the top of my head they're similar contexts. But at any rate, let's just pick up one and get the gist. So, We can get it right from the source and then go on to see what Chemnitz has to say about it and what other things we might add if if our context has produced different questions. All right, so the verse cited is 1232. Just see if there's... Yeah, this will be fine. So let's just pick up at 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? All right, so we have a miracle. There's a demon-oppressed man. Obviously, Jesus removes the blindness and the muteness, but he does so by defeating this demon who is oppressing the man. So there's a spiritual warfare going on between Christ and this demon, and Christ wins. It's self-evident to all that this is a legitimate miracle. And so all the people were amazed. They marvel and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Which, of course, as Jesus is going to point out, makes no sense. It makes no sense in a, in a logical way. But what, they, but what are they actually doing at this point? So, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit over and against the unholy spirit... It's this very activity that they're saying is satanic. That's at, the, that's at the root and at the core. It's saying the office and work of the Holy Spirit is evil. The office and work of the Holy Spirit is satanic. You can already see how that's a different kind of sin. It's like, it's like if you're dying of thirst and there's a garden hose on, pouring water. Remember when you were a kid and it was safe to drink out of the garden hose? Okay. And you go over and you pinch the hose or you kink the hose and you say, 
that water is poison. Are you going to drink it? No. Are you going to die of thirst? Yeah, in our analogy. So the sin isn't that it's a more grave sin than other sins that are committed, but the nature of the sin is such that you cut yourself off from the very grace. The very thing that would save you, the water in the instance of our analogy, is the very thing you call poison and clamp off so that neither you nor anyone around you can have any. So it's mistaking the action of the Holy Spirit as the action of the unholy spirit, but more than just a mistaking, a knowing and conscious determination that even though the Holy, you know this is the Holy Spirit, you're going to say it isn't. You're going to try to convince yourself and others that it isn't. So it's an, a deep internal lie and a deep internal deception. Okay, we're pretty much striking at the essence of it here. Then in verse 22 and 23, 24 um, gives us the Pharisees claim it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now they saw what happened. They're not denying that there was a demon, that the demon was cast out. That's important. 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, he's effectively just saying your your argument doesn't make any sense. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Um, The idea here is that it's, it's binary. It's one or the other. It's the Holy Spirit or the unholy spirit. If the unholy spirits are being cast out, then by whom? Except by the Holy Spirit. So that's what Jesus is riffing on here. Therefore they will be your judges, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So the unholy spirit and the Spirit of God. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Who's the strong man? Satan, exactly right. Satan's the strong man. Um, And Christ here, I mean, humorously, playfully, shows himself to be entering the strong man's house, binding up the strong man, and then plundering his goods. Which in concrete is this man who was oppressed, who was uh, the possession of this demon, Pressed by this demon, mute, blind, his mouth and eyes being controlled by the demon. Pastor? Yes, sir. So he asked them, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Mm -hmm. Is that, are we to understand that the Pharisees and others were exercising demons prior to or at the same time contemporaneously yeah. with Jesus? They were exercising demons? Yeah, there are other New Testament indications of exorcism of demons. There are fewer, but um, there are instances in the Old Testament of awareness of demons or evil spirits or lying spirits and combat of those. Uh, maybe the one that's most obvious is the one who is oppressing Saul and David combats that unclean spirit with his music, with his harp, and 
Yeah. In the Old Testament, it just it's also there. It just tends to take on a different form. You've got all the the false gods and the false religions and all the hierarchy of evil running amok in uh, sort of official ways, having this high place or that altar or this tree, that kind of thing going on all through the life of of the Old Testament people, sadly, because they won't get rid of their false gods, they won't get rid of their idol worship, they continue to do things unclean and in the domain of the demons. And then all of that just historical circumstances and by the sovereignty of God, it's a, it's a different situation in which Christ emerges and the demonic are acting a bit differently, I mean, but only in degree than they had previously. So you do have other exorcists mentioned in the scriptures, especially the New Testament. And the point would be, anytime there's an exorcism of an unclean spirit, it's by way of the Holy Spirit. So if your sons are, are in fact casting out demons, which Jesus grants that they are, they're doing this by the Holy Spirit. And so your own son, your own sons are your judges. Your own sons will condemn your hypocrisy, your lying, your deceit. And at the root of it is it's a knowing, it's a knowing deceit. They know that this is the Holy Spirit. They know that that's the, I mean, this is Theology 101. They know that the unholy spirits are being driven out by the Holy Spirit. And even though they know this and they're convicted in their hearts, they willfully are choosing to lie about it. And that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's the sin not against his person, but against his office and work. Okay, so let's go on just a little further in the text then. We're, um, so... I know some of you have just come in. In Chemnitz, we're on page 105, and you might just want to put a bookmark or finger there or somehow leave it open to 105. What we've done is, since Chemnitz cites Matthew 12, 32, among the other two synoptic Gospels, we've just gone to Matthew 12, and we're looking at the biblical source for this sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this second example again that Jesus uses in 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? It's like, look, I'm, that's what I'm doing. That's what you're seeing. Here, here Jesus speaks of the binary nature of this that I was alluding to a moment earlier. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's particular to this context is the spiritual warfare and that it's either Christ and his Holy Spirit or it's Satan and the unholy spirits. You have one or the other. That's it. So if you're not with me, you're against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
All right. So again, this is the the ground and the root, and you can tell that the Holy Spirit. So when he says specifically, I mean, Jesus is actually teaching us a lot here, because whenever he says when he says whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is somehow higher than the Son of Man. In their persons, they're both equal. But the nature of this sin is such that it's a blasphemy or a speaking against the Holy Spirit in his office and work as he is against the evil spirits. And it's a willful knowing, lying and deceiving blasphemy and speaking against the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's one of the sedes, one of the seats of this doctrine, Matthew 12. 32 in specific, but this whole section, verses 22 through 32. Let's pause and see if you have any questions from the text itself. i answer as best as I can here. There's one. Uh, just the, another popular notion of neutrality, that, mm-hmm. that we can have neutrality, um, and clearly here that there is no neutrality. Is mm-hmm. it just, I don't know. It just yeah, exactly. is very widespread, and it's, it's a temptation I, that I feel like myself, I think, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. But this is a stark reminder that it's not the case. Yeah, there's, a, there's this other curious instance where you remember there is a man who's going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the disciples say, Lord, you better stop him. He doesn't have uh, our credentials, our imprimatur. He's freelancing here and using your name. And there Jesus says something very, in that context, Jesus says something very different. Whoever is not against us is for us. So it's this, when someone is using the name of Jesus and fighting on his side, um, Jesus is, is welcoming. And you see it, you actually kind of see something that superficially would appear to contradict this. But of course, Jesus isn't contradicting at all. The point is still that it's binary. And if people are working with us on our side against the principality and powers of darkness, then they're not against us. They're not against me. Very clearly makes sense. Here, it's likewise, uh, the context is likewise this spiritual warfare that's going on. But the Pharisees aren't casting out people in the name of Jesus. They're not on his side. In fact, they're saying that his work is the work of Satan. The work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the unholy spirit. That's their claim. And this is a kind of blasphemy that precludes one from forgiveness. You might even think about it in these terms. No, this might represent somewhat of a, a shift. How are you going to convert people if you preach the law to them and they say that's the work of the devil? You preach the gospel to them, they say that's a satanic lie. You cast out a demon in front of them and they say you're only doing that by the work of demons. How can you reach such a person with the gospel? In fact, the truth is the gospel is reaching them and they're blaspheming against it. The, tr- the truth is self-evident to them, and they're blaspheming against it in their heart. And blaspheme against it, not only in their heart, but of course with their mouths in such a way that it's, um, 
they're attempted to keep others from entering the kingdom as well. Okay, so is that good? Give us the source there. Yeah, well, a key element of the sin against the Holy Spirit seems to be, well, here, let me, um, so Francis Pieper is one of our best dogmaticians. I don't know, he wrote this somewhere in what, the 1920s, 1930s? This is his um, dogmatics, and it's been used about as long. It's not a perfect text, obviously. There's some things we can be critical about. But his section on the... uh, Sin Against the Holy Ghost is very good, very comprehensive. Let me read to you one thing that he says that is pertinent. Bear with me here. Okay, here's something that he says that I think is very clarifying. The sin against the Holy Ghost is committed when, after the Holy Ghost has convinced a person in his heart of the divine truth, that person nevertheless not only rejects the truth he is convinced of, but also blasphemes it. So I think that that's an important part of this, because it's not mere unbelief. I mean, we can say we can say more about what the holy the sin against the Holy Spirit isn't than we can say about what it is. It isn't mere unbelief. It isn't stubborn resistance. It isn't even apostasy. It isn't denying Jesus. Um, we have biblical examples of people who have done all of these things and yet been converted and been saved. So it's a specific and narrow class of sinning, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit. Um, enlightening one's heart and one's mind, and a person not just rejecting that, but blaspheming it and claiming within themselves, and obviously to the face of God, that this is in fact the, the greatest evil, the work of the unholy spirit, diametrically opposed to this. That's something you don't come back from, because the very means that would be used to bring you back are the very things you are identifying and blaspheming. Does that make sense? Not just rejecting, not just being callous, not just being apathetic, but blaspheming against. Okay, hopefully that helps clarify some. If not, we can, um, well, before we get to Peeper, let's get uh, any further to Peeper. Let's get into Chemnitz here, see what he has to say. Things might get clearer. Yes, sir. Uh, Pastor, does this tie in with Hebrews 6, uh, the verse there that talks about those that have sinned that cannot come back? Yes, is the short answer it does. Yeah, Hebrews 6 is another one that is frequently harmonized with this teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, Hebrews 6 is is helpful. Why don't we go ahead and turn there? It's not going to hurt. I mean, there's other texts we could turn to as well. We're not going to do a comprehensive biblical study here, but Hebrews 6, you can see how it touches upon this same theme. Now, what's going on in, in the context of Hebrews is there's great temptation on the part of early Christians to return to Judaism because it's like, hey, if we just return to the temple, we can escape all this persecution and all this difficulty. So the author of Hebrews is taking great pains to explain to them that 
uh, no, you have a better high priest, you have a better sacrifice, you have a better temple, you have a better altar, you have a better food from that altar, you've got all of these things. And if you, if you knowingly, willingly turn away from Christ, who is greater than all of these, and um, the superior blessings, how are you going to be brought back in? So he's going to come preach Christ to you? It's Christ that you reject. So that, that's important um, context for Hebrews 6. This isn't a dogmatic textbook that we're reading from. It's uh, an occasional and pastoral writing. Let's just pick up at one. We'll go quick. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Interesting aside, do you think that the author of Hebrews thinks that there ought to be a development in the Christian life? So despite certain Lutherans assuring you to the contrary, you might just conform yourself to the scripture and not listen to them. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Okay, that, that's the key. Who have once been enlightened. These are true Christians who fall away but again, it's not identical to apostasy because Peter was a Christian who fell away. There are other Christians who have fallen away. For it is impossible in the case of those who have, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away, have apostatized, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I actually think this is maybe the most helpful section in terms of the dynamic of what's going on. So you're drinking in the rain. The land is drinking in the rain. That's the same thing as all of this enlightened tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, etc. Okay, that's the land that's drinking in the rain. And it produces a crop useful. Okay, but if that, if that rain then falls and produces not a crop that is useful, but rather produces thorns and thistles, well then it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So what is, the, what is the rain in this analogy? 
yeah, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the word and the sacraments. And if that word and that sacraments, I mean, again, we'd include here law and gospel, the preaching of repentance and forgiveness, the, the whole shebang. And if it's, if that, that rain falling upon the soil is producing good crops, well and good. But if one apostatizes, not merely just falls away out of weakness, like Peter, fearful of his life, falls uh, into apostasy by weakness and then returns later, but if one rather identifies the, like the rain itself than falling produces in the soul of one who has committed the sin of the Holy Spirit, it produces not good fruit, but it produces thorns and thistles. So let's make that really concrete. If I say to someone, you know your conscience, you know, let's, let's say there's a Christian, and they say, yes, I know Christ, I love Christ, everything's great. And then they apostatize in such a way that they say Christ is satanic and the Holy Spirit is satanic and the word and the sacraments, they're all satanic. And then you're going to come to them and what are you going to say? You're going to bring the rain, aren't you? Onto the soil that is them. And you're going to say, okay, you know your conscience accuses you of sin, don't you? And they're going to say, I already know what you're doing. Stop manipulating me. I'm not interested in your law. Well, you know that the law declares you to be a sinner for the sake of Christ. And they say, I hate Christ. I want nothing to do with Christ. You're going to say, well, don't you know he died for your sins? Of course I know that, and I utterly reject it. I think it's, a, I, I think it's um, completely false. You were once enlightened by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit can, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay. How are you going to... So the rain that falls on the soil now doesn't produce any good fruit, nor can it. It produces only thorns and thistles. That's not every person who commits apostasy, but it is some people who commit apostasy do so in such a way that they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The very means that God would use to bring them back into the kingdom are the very things that, they, that produce thorn and thistle within them. So and you've seen this. You've seen people bristle, especially former Christians. You've seen them uh, bristle and despise and act with satanic hatred and blasphemy toward the law and the gospel and the things of God. How does faith come? By hearing and by hearing of the word of God. So if someone despises that hearing, despises the word of God, knows it, has been convinced of it, and now blasphemes it in their heart, how is that person going to be reached? And that's the point of the author of Hebrews. So when one falls away in this regard, there's no bringing them back. This, of course, is in accord with the last chapter of 1 John um, John's first epistle, where he says, and he, he makes this distinction between sin that is not leading to death and sin that leads to death. And the sin not leading to death, we should pray intercessory prayers for. But the sin that leads to death, we should not pray. Why? What are we going to pr- ask God to do? God, please convert this person. How am I going to convert them? Uh, with your word and spirit. Yeah, they know my word and spirit and they despise it. And the more you say it, the more thorns and thistles, the more hatred and blasphemy is going to pop up. What good is a prayer in that case? Nothing. It's of no good. And that's why um, John says, I say that you ought not pray for these. So there are cases then in which we see the nature of the apostasy fits the description of a sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and again, it's not, it's not that God can't forgive it because it's such a grave sin. 
God forgives all kinds of grave sins, even blasphemy against the other persons. It's that the nature of the sin is such that it precludes coming back from it. So it's one of the, it's one of the great dangers, especially, I mean, it's, it's a great danger for all, all Christians. But in the original context, of course, you've got these, you've got these uh, Pharisees, these um, you know, self-proclaimed, ex- they're lay people. The Pharisees are lay people, by and large. Uh, but they're, you know, self-proclaimed experts in theology. And the same thing is true, you know, this is a danger with, um, that's a danger that goes into the pastoral office. It's a danger that um, increases as one's uh, office increases, so to speak, because you recognize that if you fall away, the chances of you being brought back are virtually nil because you know what you're falling away from. Yeah, please. Um, It just reminds me of when he warns us to shake the dust off our feet. Also, when we go to a town or a city where they're not receptive. Yeah. And I'm thinking that's almost like a litmus test, which... Because you feel bad, you, you know. I'm I'm German. I don't give up, yeah. You know? mm, and mm-hmm. I have to remember that sometimes you just have to walk on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it may, it's a perfect case for soothing your, you know, what you feel like is your failure, which is wrong, you mm-hmm. know, um, and walking away because you just make things worse. I just never looked at it that way. Yeah, no, no disagreement with you there. Um, my only point of clarification would be so when the gospel meets with resistance such that jesus says okay wipe the dust from your feet and move on that's categorically different than the sin against the holy spirit even though those those people may well end up condemned or damned um it is it is not identical to the sin against the holy spirit at least just generally speaking um and i i know your point though is and i agree with your point um it is an indicator that it may be too far gone already, where you're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where it is, a, I would only be considering, well, this may be a sin against the Spirit. Yeah, I mean, we can identify people. We, not, we shouldn't be hasty. We should be very reserved. We shouldn't, I mean, because this, this is a terrible thing. It can lead people to despair if they haven't committed it, and you, and you start accusing them of, of having committed it. So, yeah, you want to be really careful, but we can identify when people have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's clear biblically. Um, we can also, and, and we ought not pray for them, as John says, because we just we recognize the reality of the situation. Um, where we meet with apostasy, uh, or I mean, that's more generalized, or rejection of the gospel outright, there is a lesson to be learned in kind of combining these texts, and that is um, people are going to reject God. You can't take that personally as you're evangelizing or as you're sharing the gospel. Um, and there is, when they reject that, there's more work for God to do in order to till that soil, so to speak, in the hopes that some will yet be saved. Yeah, it could be just not here, not yet. Mm-hmm. There's always that option, too. That's yeah. why it's been very freeing for me as I've gotten older, hopefully wiser. It just gives me the chance. I, I don't have to judge anymore or look into people's hearts because I can't do it. Yeah, well, and there's this used car salesman 
like spirit of Christianity that's gotten really popular in the 20th and 21st century. It's kind of like, I don't give up on anyone. I'll just keep going. And it's like, you know, what, how can I get you to buy this? Look, look, there's more. Look, the price just got cut again. And, you know, all of the scriptures mitigate against that. Like, that does nothing but just empowers the sinner. They're, they're, why do you wipe the dust off your feet? Not as an act of, ah, shucks. It's an act of judgment. It's an act of righteousness. I don't even want the dust that you walk around on to be stuck to my body. It's going to be so bad for you and so bad for this place. There, there's an, so it really is embracing a different ethos, a biblical ethos, that we're not used car salesmen. We're not breathlessly trying to beg people into the faith. We're not slashing prices and trying to make deals and then wringing our hands at God, being like, why won't you convert them? Which is where most of the, our energy is spent. Instead of being like, these people, maybe even my own flesh and blood, are godless. And they're heart of heart. And I've done my best to warn them. And the dignity of the Lord and the dignity of the gospel is such that uh, I'm not going to throw pearls before swine anymore. And now God can till that soil and God can bring, bring sorrow. He can break the proud spirit. And when that happens, I'll be ready. But until that happens, the dust is wiped from my feet. So that is, um, that is a more faithful, more biblical ethos. It might strike us as being cruel, but if it does, it's just because we've absorbed this sort of lowest common, you know, what, how cheap can I make the gospel so that you'll please buy it, which all that does to a hardened heart is just goes, look how pathetic this is. I knew it was. Whereas if you've got a truly hardened heart and you are wiping the dust off your feet and they're like, what are you doing? Oh, it's going to be so bad for you. I don't even want the dust of your home to be on me. And, and that's it. No, but if you repent, there's always Jesus. No. no. That's a complete confusion of law and gospel. Let the judgment stand. It does stand. Announce it. That's it. It's high ground. It's dignity. It's God. And then what does the sinner do? He has to realize, well... That's what God says, and that's what I say, and those two things are at odds. And then if he wants to, if he wants to continue and carry on in his way, he can do so with the full knowledge that um, he is, he's directly opposed to God. That's a spiritually healthier place to be than deluded. Even though, obviously, it's spiritual death still. Okay, so just some thoughts on the ethos of sharing the gospel and regaining the high ground, as it were, um, hold people accountable. Every, every, person, every person out there is without excuse. That's what the Bible says. If you believe the Bible, then when you go up to a pagan, they're without excuse. Do you have a conscience? Do you have a soul? You know that you've sinned. You know that your creator is upset with you. Exactly. Yeah, Romans, Romans 1, yeah, Romans 1, 2, 3, that whole thing is all great. Um, yeah, this, so this is regaining the high ground uh, what, do I, what would be the low ground? The low ground would be this sniveling, cajoling, salesman-esque uh, way of presenting the truth of God's word that is dominated in our land for I don't know how long. And it, it, it's absurd. And it's, it's ineffective. <laughs> 
So regaining the high ground is realizing you can talk to anyone. Don't forgive their ignorance. They're not ignorant. Don't say, oh, well, they weren't raised with the same advantage as I was. They were raised with enough that they're without excuse. It's not you who says that or me who says that. It's God who says that. So God says every single human being out there is accountable to him, is without excuse, knows in their heart that they're a sinner, knows in their heart that they're not reconciled to him. And, they, and when you tell them that, uh, don't, don't give any ground. Otherwise, you're conceding and giving way to Satan and lies and their delusion. Hold them accountable. Every mouth will be stopped. Theirs, mine. I mean, we don't have to be uh, arrogant about it. Um, the law, the conscience, every mouth will be stopped. All are held accountable before God. And then this is the gospel, is that God has sent his son in this one and only way. Has he demonstrated his love for us that we would be saved through Christ and through his blood shed? But don't present that as like, so now will you pretty please buy it? God has done this thing for you. Believe it. If you reject it, you will be condemned. You know, Jesus likens this time as the time of Noah. What was Noah doing as a preacher of righteousness? Was going around being like, oh, you know, pretty pretty please... uh, Repent and believe in God so you can have a happier life before the floodwaters come. No. I mean, he's saying, you're all eating, drinking, being merry, you're all ignoring this, and the judgment of God is going to come upon you. There's one chance to escape it. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the flood is coming, not of water, but of fire. It's the final one and the last one and the absolute one. And, you've got the, and God is granting you this one chance to get into the ark of his holy Christian church and be saved. You want to get on the ark or not? I mean, that's, that's the uh, context. So when the Holy Spirit, since we're on the Holy Spirit, he doesn't merely convict of sin or convict of righteousness. I think that, sadly, that's where a lot of modern reformational Christians would like to stop. That the Holy Spirit goes about con, you know, convicting of sin and then, oh, but Jesus. The third thing, and it's like a bar stool with two legs. If you don't have the third leg, do you have a bar stool? Nope. <laughs> You've got a trap door going straight to the ground. So you need the third leg for the other two to make any difference. And the third leg is he convicts of judgment. And that's really the linchpin of our Christian witness. It's not enough to just do law and then just do gospel. The whole point of, of law and gospel is the reality that this is the day of salvation and you don't know if tomorrow will yet be. You don't know if this afternoon will yet be. The flood of fire is coming. Flee, escape. This is your only chance. That's not used car salesmen are begging or cajoling or whimpering or lowering the price or all, uh, compromising with the world or all of these other nonsensical things we've all come up with. It's uh, be saved from the wrath that is to come. Okay, hopefully that um, just treats on the ethos of the Spirit, the ethos of the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles in a way that's edifying. We have to regain the high ground. We have to regain what God himself speaks and believe it and interact with others uh, accordingly. I mean, let me present it to you this way. How effective have we been so far with this other approach? (laughs) And why would God bless it if it's contrary to him?
Okay, on page 105, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And we covered some of this initial ground last week. We'll just pick right back up at question 212. Since Christ solemnly declares, Matthew 12.32, Mark 3.29, Luke 12.10, that there is a sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that is forgiven neither in this world nor in that which is to come, Ought one judge or speak lightly of that kind of sin? In this question, we must be careful not to diminish the universal promises of the gospel as though some sins are so great and horrible that they cannot be forgiven to the sinner, though he repent and truly believe in Christ. For this would be to deny blasphemously that Christ has made satisfaction for all sins by his passion and death. By this very thing, troubled consciences are faced with a situation that easily leads to despair. So there's a gem hidden in here, and it'll probably be spelled out in more detail down the the road here by Chemnitz. But the hidden gem is we must be careful not to diminish the universal promises of the gospel as though some sins are so great and horrible they cannot be forgiven to the sinner. So if, let, let me just give a hypothetical. If you think you've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and you desire that God would forgive you, you haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, Because the sin of the Holy Spirit isn't a sin of gravity. You may may have said in, in in a moment of utter foolishness and unbelief, you may have said horrible things about the Holy Spirit or horrible things about the work of the Holy Spirit or... Um, you, you may have denigrated word and sacrament. You may have done all of those things. If you desire to be forgiven and reconciled to God, you have that forgiveness. You are reconciled to God. You haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Again, the sin of the Holy Spirit is such that you continue to hate and despise those things. It's a locking in in the soul that those things are satanic and you won't hear otherwise. So that there is a little gem that's of absolute importance hidden within this first paragraph. Second paragraph, various profane and pernicious opinions regarding this question were advanced and promoted in the ancient church. Some held that absolutely no hope of forgiveness remains for those who have fallen after baptism. Yikes! Um, the Confessions attribute something like this to Jerome, it's, it's, uh, um, but they're, they're uh, gentle. It's the concept that Jerome um, seems to popularize, that uh, in baptism you are on board uh, the new ark, the holy Christian church, and then when you commit a grave or mortal sin after that, you shipwreck the ark, and now you've got to do penance and receive... Uh, absolution through penance and satisfaction. That's like grasping onto the planks of the ship that's broken up. You can still be saved. So obviously the confessions are critical of this because we know that sin, even serious sin, remains and or crops up in the baptized. Is Peter baptized when he's acting hypocritically? in the church and not eating with the Gentiles and Paul has to call him out publicly? Of course. Is this a grievous sin of falling into a false doctrine and false practice? Of course. Um, Has has Peter himself thereby made a shipwreck of the ark of the church and now he's just grasping onto the planks by... No. So the Lutherans are rightly critical of of this kind of thought popularized by St. Jerome. 
That would be one example. Some held that absolutely no hope of forgiveness remains for those who have fallen after baptism. Paul clearly refutes this opinion by the example of the Corinthians and Galatians, who, having fallen after baptism, aren't just about all the epistles occasioned by Christians falling after baptism? Yeah. Oof, that's not going to work. Again obtained forgiveness and were reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 4. And Christ says, If thy brother, that is, one who is a Christian, sin against thee and repent, forgive him, not only seven times, but seventy-seven times. A little different translation there. The Novations sharply contended that he who denied acknowledged truth at the time of persecution could not obtain forgiveness of sins no matter how much he repented and sought to be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. All right, so here is a historical example. The Novations taught that when times of persecution came, if you apostatized in order to save yourself or save those who you loved, then they identified that as a sin against the Holy Spirit and you could not be saved. That's roundly rejected by everyone in the West. So that heresy of the Novations is rightly anathematized. Continuing with Chemnitz, the Orthodox Church condemned this opinion as false and harmful, solidly refuted on immovable grounds of Scripture, as also the example of Peter denying Christ clearly shows. Why did Peter deny Christ? To save himself. He was scared. Yeah, he was scared. And it's it's fascinating because those details of Peter, um, they're particularly embarrassing, and they could have only come to us by Peter. So it's a remarkable thing uh, when you get to, know the, get to know the apostles and you get to know Peter. Peter, maybe more than any of the other apostles, is not afraid of pointing out the specifics of how he was wrong. Really wonderful. Okay, the second full paragraph on page 213, Chemnitz writes, Some have also dangerously held that sins committed out of weakness are against God the Father, and those done in ignorance are against the Son, and those can be forgiven. But sinful works done deliberately, consciously, and willingly are sins against the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven. Yikes. Even if the sinner who has fallen comes to his senses, moved by repentance and believes in Christ. But this view conflicts with the whole doctrine of the gospel. And indeed it does. I mean, everybody... Everybody in the West rejects this. That's just a terrible teaching. For the gospel teaches, first, that Christ is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Second, that Christ commanded that repentance and remission of sins be preached universally to all sinners. Third, that the promise of the gospel is universal that everyone who repents and believes in Christ shall not be condemned, but obtain eternal life. Fourth, that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are also attached to this universal promise. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. John twenty twenty three. Finally, there are found in Holy Scripture the examples of Adam and David, who indeed sinned consciously and willingly, And yet the way to repentance was open to them, and they obtained remission of sins by faith. 
Now then, it is clear from these reminders with what danger it is fraught to speak too discreetly and minutely of that sin which in the judgment of Christ shall be forgiven neither in this world nor in that which is to come. And these expressions of the ancients have namely been listed—sorry, namely been listed here for this purpose—that pastors be warned against which views in this question they should be on their guard. And if it ever happens that afflicted consciences are disturbed by that kind of thoughts, that they might know from what sources and grounds comfort is to be drawn. All right, question 213. But how can the sin against the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable be simply yet truly and thoroughly described? The simplest and safest way is that which Augustine pointed out to us and himself followed. For he noted that since that sin is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it is committed against the ministry, gifts, and works of the Holy Spirit. But since repentance unto remission of sins is preached also to them that resist the Holy Spirit, and Stephen also prays for them, Augustine points out that for that sin to be so against the Holy Spirit that it cannot be forgiven, final impenitence must be added since namely a man perseveres and dies in it without repentance. Just going through. Okay, therefore we can thus judge a posteriori very correctly and surely regarding that sin against the Holy Spirit that is not forgiven, Namely, since God makes known his righteous judgment against the man that goes astray in such sin and dies without any repentance. And from this, the ancients drew useful and salutary doctrines, warnings, and exhortations. Namely, that not all sins that are committed against the ministry and operations of the Holy Spirit are to be, or, or are by that token, unforgivable. That's what I was trying to articulate just a minute ago. For many of those who have resisted the Holy Spirit and have grieved and vexed him have later been converted and saved by the grace of God. Isn't that a delightful statement? You know, as you get to know the persons of the Holy Trinity, I spoke some about this yesterday. The Holy Spirit's just so wonderful, wonderful in his own unique ways. The Father's wonderful in his own unique ways, as is the Son in his own unique ways, as is the Spirit in his own unique ways. And it's just, it's wonderful to think of a Holy Spirit who can indeed be grieved and is grieved by us when we oppose him. And yet, when you think of someone who is patient, who is long-suffering, who is enduring, who is loving, uh, the Holy Spirit um, is, is the epitome of all of that. And... I think, I think there's many different ways when, when Christians endure in their lives uh, the sins of other people. It's a very much a reflection of the Holy Spirit. So we, get, we glimpse some wonderful things about the, the Holy Spirit. Yet by and large, the sins by which one resists the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit are much more serious and dangerous than other sins. And that for this reason, that we can be set free from other sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. Namely, 
when he, through his ministry and operation, arouses and kindles true repentance and faith in our hearts, by which we obtain forgiveness of sins. But as long as those who resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his work persist in that stubbornness, no way to obtain forgiveness of sins can be open to them. Moreover, the sins that oppose the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit are listed by the ancients in this order that we may learn to avoid and beware of them. So I do think that Chemnitz is drifting a little bit more broadly um, than the sin against the Holy Spirit per se, because we're starting to just talk about final impenitence, and we're talking about, I mean, he's just kind of slipping into broader categories here, um, where there are those who resist but not unto death and this kind of thing. At any rate, let's see if we can get a few of these knocked out. One, so just to regain the context here, the sins that oppose the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, these are not identical to the sins against the Holy Spirit, per se. So he's more general here. The sins that oppose the ministry and work of the Spirit are listed by the ancients in this order that we may learn to avoid and beware of them. One, presumption regarding the mercy of God, or regarding impunity to sin. For example, when someone relying on mercy sins freely, falsely persuaded that he will not lose his salvation, though he impudently continues, in, uh, continues indefinitely in sins without repentance and conversion and perishes in his stubbornness. This, um, this is the real danger of antinomianism, whether you want to call it soft antinomianism or hard antinomianism or lawlessness or whatever you want to call it, gospel reductionism. This is really the, the pernicious danger of it. I mean, I've literally had people say to me, um, I'm free to sin because Christ died, so I'm going to go ahead and do that now. That's presumption regarding the mercy of God or regarding impunity to sin. When someone relying on mercy sins freely, falsely persuaded, uh, persuaded that he will not lose his salvation. Okay, there's the first one. It's profoundly dangerous. Two, obstinacy. When a man with a hard and impenitent heart rejects and despises exhortations to repentance and admonitions from the word of God, in obstinate malice, willing neither to hear nor to obey, But rather, the more he is admonished, the more he is hardened and made worse. Likewise, when he does not acknowledge sins as sins, but rather excuses, defends, and glories in them. Okay, so obstinacy in general, and you can see how both presumption and obstinacy, if you you want to narrow them down all the way to their essence, you can get them to be flavors of sins against the Holy Spirit. But as such, obstinacy is broad enough. It's not necessarily the sin against the Holy Spirit, although it can manifest in that form. Three, attack on acknowledged truth. When someone who knows the acknowledged truth of the divine word and knowingly violates, injures, and opposes conscience, and in Pharisaic hatred ascribes the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. I mean, now we're much more concretely into what is the sin against the Holy Spirit. I think knowingly violating, injuring, and opposing conscience is very dangerous to salvation. I mean, can hardly be overstated how dangerous this is. But that's still some distance from 
from the sin against the Holy Spirit, then as you narrow it down to in Pharisaic hatred ascribes the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, that's, a, that's where you're getting like right at the essence of the sin against the Holy Spirit. But there I think you can see the wisdom of Peeper's comment that the sin against the Holy Ghost is committed when after the Holy Ghost has convinced a person in his heart of the divine truth, that person nevertheless not only rejects the truth he is convinced of, but also blasphemes it. Because if you, know, if you just went to your average like um, Antifa or BLM or progressive college campus, mostly peaceful gathering, and you started preaching the morality of God, uh, what response are you going to get? you're going to be told that that's evil and wicked and satanic. So the things of the flesh are opposed to the things of the spirit. It's just generally true. The wisdom then in identifying the sin against the Holy Spirit is when one is actually, have all these masses committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? No. And they can yet be converted. The sin against the Holy Spirit occurs when that inner conviction occurs of the truth and one denies it and blasphemes it. So I think that that's a, an important distinction to make. Okay, please. Um, would the denial of the true presence fall under here? Um, no is the, short, is the short and easy answer. <laughs> no. Um, because there are probably in, probably in virtually every Christian soul there are false beliefs or errors in theology that are clung to even unto death and God forgives those. Obviously denomination and confession make a big difference because I, I mean they can be the difference between eternal life and eternal death. But even if they're not, they can make a huge difference between being 5% in error and being 95% in error. And the gravity of that is illustrated in what Paul writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about um, passing through fire and a man's labors being burnt up, the wood, hay, and stubble that he, you know, which somebody has the false doctrine of... um, the Lord's Supper is my remembrance, not Jesus' gift, but my remembrance, my action. I mean, that's wood, hay, and stubble. That's going to be burned up. That's going to be a man who suffers loss. If he's a pastor and he's been telling who knows how many hundreds or thousands of people that this lie is the truth, um, he's going to be saved because of his faith in Christ alone, but saved as one who passes through that fire, that, that wood, hay, and stubble of that false teaching. Um, will have to be destroyed. Yeah. So, I mean, one of obviously one of the chief goals in this life is to strive toward doctrinal purity and purity of life. The goal is to be forgiven of as little as possible, not to be forgiven of as much as possible. <laughs> that's, why, that's why John says, I write these things to you that you may not sin. It's why we spend time diligently studying God's word. Um, and trying to put to death, mortify the false belief we have, mortify the false uh, piety and uh, sinful passions that we have. We want to mortify and put to death all of these things. 
Yeah, so uh, purity of doctrine matters a lot. Um, because similar errors could be made in regard to baptism. Um, similar errors. This is, the, this is a dogmatic distinction. We don't have time for this. Probably I'm the only one interested anyway. This where it gets created primary and secondary doctrines, and secondary doctrines are doctrines you can have an error on and still be a Christian, still be saved. There are primary doctrines that you can't have an error on and be saved. This sounds like it's sophistry, but it really comes out of the scriptures. So, for example, if you have a God who's different than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, can you be saved? No, you don't have faith. So that is a primary doctrine then. One can't have an error in the primary fundamental doctrine of God or the primary fundamental doctrine of Christ. By the way, we confess this once a year every time we confess, confess the Athanasian Creed. As we first confess the Trinity and then we confess the persons of Christ and then we say whoever does not believe these things cannot be saved. They're primary doctrines. They're at the essence. Um, the, the atonement of Christ is at the as at the essence. You can't deny the atonement of Christ and be saved. That's at least what Luther and Pieper held. And I think it's what the Bible says. You have to tear the book of Hebrews out. Now, God can, God's the judge of individuals. That's fine. But yeah, if you deny the very death of Christ for you, does that make you a Christian? You know, that puts you outside of the Christian faith. So these are, I mean, these are important things. Then other things like, well, what if you're wrong in your eschatology? Or what if you're wrong in your sacramentology? Or what if you're wrong... Um, and these other things. You haven't denied the essence of the faith, so you can be saved. These are grave and serious errors, but they're secondary in nature. They won't keep you from the kingdom. All right, that's it, and more than it. The Lord be with you.